we're at the very end of Colossians. And before we end Colossians, I thought it would be good to kind of talk through a couple points of what's happened along the way. Trying to figure out how to do this has been a little bit complicated. So I, I made some points, and then I decided to ditch that during the worship. And I decided, well, we'll just kind of start at Colossians 1, and, and I'll just kind of want to cover a few verses that, that help us kind of ease into the end so we can look more at the forest. When we come to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Skipping down to verse 7, we see that Paul writes, just as you learned it, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So from this sort of introduction, there's three people uh, looking at the map. We know that Paul was in Rome, in Italy, under arrest. In uh, Acts chapter 25, verse 11, he was on trial for proclaiming Christ crucified. Uh, he saw that they were just figuring out a way to kill him. Uh, a lynch mob had already been kind of set out to, to, to have him executed. It was bypassed because his nephew uh, got wind of it and told the authorities what was about to happen. And during that time, Paul appealed to Caesar, which every Roman citizen had the right to do. And so as Paul was down in Caesarea, down here on the bottom part, of the map, he appeals to see Caesar. He goes by boat uh, with some excitement to Rome. And so he sat under house arrest uh, for a couple of years waiting to see Caesar. And while he was in Rome, Epaphras makes his way to Paul to share of a situation of, a, of the, the churches that he pastored over in Colossae. He would have pastored three churches or in the region of three cities, uh, modern day Turkey. Going up high, on the top left, you see Ephesus. Uh, to the east, about 80 miles, there's Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And these three cities is, is where Epaphras was from. Epaphras started these churches. And as he ministered to them, he had great love for the people there. He cared for them. And as he uh, grew this church, he realized that a problem was was creeping in to the understanding of the people there. It was syncretism or Gnosticism that they were beginning to think certain things that weren't um, according to doctrine. Mainly, the Gnosticism taught that all flesh is evil, and so therefore Christ can't be human was one problem. And so Christ wasn't really God, but was merely a stepping stone of many stepping stones uh, to understanding who deity was or who God was. And if you came to them, they would give you the keys and the codes and they would teach you the things that you needed to know in order to get to God. Only a select few could attain this knowledge. That was one side of Gnosticism. On the other side of Gnosticism was the group that I probably would find myself in that said, well, if all matter is evil and, and all spiritual things can't coexist with evil, therefore everything that we do in this present world can't affect the spiritual world so let's have at it let's just live it up because no matter what sin we do this body can't contaminate the other body and so paul gets wind of this and so he writes this letter and in today's text we'll see that he sent this letter with two other letters likely ephesians and the book of philemon to this region to kind of help straighten out the situation Paul praises them in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He kind of thanks them for what he's heard, that he rejoices in the things, the progress that they're making in the faith. Verses 9 through 14, he says that he's been praying for them. The main thing that he's been praying in verse 9 is that he prayed that they may be filled with the knowledge of the will, of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Throughout this letter, it's clear that God cares about what we think of him. It's all, it's all, it's one of these things. How much theology do we have to have in order to be right with God? Uh, can we just believe in Jesus and be okay? Like on, I would definitely say believing in Christ is all you have to do for salvation. But if you're in a situation or a, a church or a group that doesn't necessarily teach the right things about God, should that concern us? And clearly throughout the scriptures, Paul is making this battle for our minds that we would rightly understand who God is. He makes great uh, 
effort to let us know that God has revealed himself to us and he's revealed things to us that we're supposed to know. And apparently it matters because he goes through this great explanation of of who Christ is beginning in verse 15. We see that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that that Jesus is not over creation. He is a part of creation. He was the very first thing that God created. He's human. And if you read this in the English, there's there, you could make a point if you take that verse in isolation. But that word of is a tricky word. Pulpit of wood means pulpit equals wood. Teacher of class does not mean that the teacher is in the class, but the teacher is over the class. And we saw that within scripture, this term firstborn was used as a term of authority. And so Paul, when he writes here, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning that he is in authority over all creation. And if you move on to verse 16, 17, 18, we learn that he's authority over creation. He created all things. All things are created for him and by him and through him. He's reconciled all things to himself and he's head over the church. Paul makes it absolutely clear that Jesus is indeed God. Verse 21, he then points to their situation apart from Christ. He says that before Christ, they were alienated from God, that they were Um, I don't want to put words into his mouth in this spot, but he was hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he reconciled that he brought peace between humanity and God through Christ. Paul then begins in verse 24 to explain that his ministry, that he was made a minister, that he was called out of what he was doing to come to understand that Christ is indeed the Messiah and that his calling was to bring the good news to the Gentiles carrying out the preaching of the word, verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He continues to say that he proclaimed this, he he slaved over this, this calling, ultimately, trying to bring people to maturity in Christ that they could find completeness. In chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 8, we see the problem that they were facing. He said, I say this, that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Clearly, there was this attack, this trying to distort what the gospel was. They were being led astray. And Paul wanted them to find freedom in Christ, the truth in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 9, he, he continues with the theme of who Christ is, that, that in him the fullness of deity, this divine nature, dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over rule of authority. Clearly, Jesus is God. He goes on in verse 14, or 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So through Christ, being God, coming in human form, he bore the sins of the world so that we might have freedom and relationship with God. The end of chapter 2, he goes on, if you've died with Christ, don't don't go on living to these the elementary teaching of the world. Don't... Go to human forms of religion, not things that God has said, but man-made religion of don't touch this, don't do this. These rules that in their most general appearance seem like, like wisdom, that, there's, that it would be good for us. It makes sense. But he says these things will ultimately kill you or they'll, they'll separate, they'll, they didn't say kill you. That's my term of, of trying to live by man-made religion. It'll break your spirit. In verse 3 of chapter 3, verse 1, there's the, it's the flipping switch or the tipping point in Colossians where Paul goes from theology to practical living. So what does all this theology mean? And in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, 
not things that are on this earth. He says, we're not of this world. We need to focus on eternity. And the things that we do in this life matter for the then. So then in verse 5 through, uh, I don't know, verse 8, he says, put off your earthly clothes. Like, don't wear those dirty garments anymore. Put on your new clothes in Christ. Verse 10, and have put on the new self that is being renewed. The words literally renovated that this new self that you're under construction by God. The true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. He makes it clear that from God's perspective, there are two categories of people. There are those in Christ and there are those not in Christ. There's no distinction. Humanity, we've so sliced up people into different groups, demographics, wealth, language, and God says, I see people who are in Christ and who are out of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're one. He keeps talking in verse 12 about put on a heart of compassion, this new clothing. We see compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. The spirit of the one who's received Christ as Savior. Verse 14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He, he talks about study the word, be in the word. As we finish Colossians, we're taking a six-week um, <clears throat> sort of excursion to Psalm 119, this, the longest psalm in the whole Bible. But the whole focus of this psalm is the importance of the word of God in our lives and in our hearts. And for those of us who love God, we love his word because we come to know him ever more dearly through his word. He goes on to say, verse 17 of of chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And from this, do all things, whether word or deed. He he gets into the very nitty-gritty of life. He explains the marital relationship, the the wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, children to the parents, fathers or parents to their children, employees to the employers and employers to the employees. This great, that, that the theology, this who Christ is affects every aspect of life. And from there we enter today's passage. In verse 2 of chapter 4, which says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it. First off, this word devote is literally to be steadfast. Towards something with strength. That you are focused on it. And as I think about this, I think, what am I devoted to? Like if, I, if you just asked me if it was like a, a pop question. And you found me in Home Depot and you weren't a church going person. And you say, hey, what are things that are you devoted to? Because if you asked me in church, I would have the right Christian answer to say. But if you caught me out of this context somewhere else, I go, well, my wife, I would be committed to my wife. Like, that's definitely something I'm devoted to. Something, someone. Just, I felt her kick me, like when I said something. (laughs) My children, my family. To God, you know. But I don't know that I would say that devotion to prayer, like to to praying, that doesn't seem like something that naturally would be in my top five list of things that I'm devoted to. But, But Paul here says devote. This is an intensity that you're committed to prayer. And I thought, well, what is prayer? And I thought, oh, I'll go to the Greek and look up the look up the word prayer. And there's nothing significant there. But the definition said to God. Like praying to God. That is how the Greek word is used. And it may be simple, but really it's significant. I, I don't know how everybody views prayer. Like some people would say, oh, prayer is just the great massive energy, rubbing a rabbit's foot, and you say a certain sort of mantra, and maybe you connect the right spiritual dots. But that prayer is actually communication to God. Everything we learned about Jesus being the creator and sustainer 
holding all things together. All things are made by him and through him. We're communicating to God that God hears our prayers. And in this last section, as I've been mulling over chapter four, the, the, the one word that seems to jump out at me is relationship. That God is a God of relationships, that he wants us in relationship with him. That when sin entered the world, we were separated from God and that we, our relationship with him was broken. And so he went out of his way to come up with a plan that could restore, to, that could reconcile us in our relationship with him. And now that that's happened through Christ, the Bible makes it clear that, that God wants us to communicate with him. Going through Luke, when Jesus talks about prayer, he used the parable of, of the, the widow before the king that she nagged him so much that finally the king gave her her wish, not because he had compassion, but because he was annoyed with her and he wanted her to go away. And Jesus said, that's what prayer is like. Be persistent. Be devoted to prayer. This keeping alert. This is continuous readiness for action it's used in i'm sorry the thing the devotion going back in romans thirteen six. it's used as far as a government official being committed to like fulfilling their actions or their activity to their duties that we as a christian are supposed to administer prayer in that way that it's a part of who we are but this keeping alert this is vigilance I think as we unpack this, as, as we get to the times, uh, making the most of every opportunity, as we go through life, as we're praying, being devoted to prayer, that, that as we go through situations, we're not just seeing them through earthly perspectives. People say, how do you pray all the time? Are you verbally praying all the time? Well, no, it'd be impossible to verbally pray all the time. But on a computer, you can have multiple files opened up simultaneously in different windows. Our brains are way more complex than any computer out there, and we all can have multiple files open up in our brain. I can be communicating with any one person thinking about three other people or situations or whatever is bugging me. Sometimes I do get the blue screen of death in my brain and go, what was, what were, can we, what? Like everything just kind of merged and I, what were we talking about? But most of the time, you can do pretty well. So you can be engaged in a conversation with somebody at the same time saying, Lord, give me wisdom in how I address this person. Like, I, help me to, to, to speak to them. We need to be diligent about prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Throughout Colossians, this word thanksgiving comes up over and over and over again. This word, if you weren't raised Catholic, it probably won't mean anything to you, like I might not, but it just sort of jumped up at me because this word in the Greek is Eucharist. And for those of us that were Catholic, when we took communion, the bread part was always referred to as the Eucharist. Now, I'm not saying anything about the Catholic Church, but I thought, man, whenever... They decided to name the bread and juice. Uh, what, what should we call the bread? Oh, there's a Greek word that means thankfulness. Let's call the bread and communion thankfulness. And I thought, man, that's really kind of cool. Because when we come to communion and we take communion, I wish I had this last week when we took communion. But the idea that the, the cross brings out thankfulness in us because Jesus paid it all for us. We have freedom. We have peace. We have security with God. And so the attitude that should bubble out of the Christian is one of thankfulness. And so Paul says, as we pray, don't be bitter against God. Don't complain to God. Have an attitude of thankfulness. Over the years, I constantly reference the silly little game that Anna made me start playing when we first got married, the thankful game. And it's amazing what this thankful game, going from the, through the alphabet, A through Z, starting with A. It's always easy for me. I'm thankful for Anna. B. 
Give me a B. What's something that you're thankful for that starts with a B? We're playing the game right now. The Bible. Good, good answer. C. What's Christ? Okay, we've got a lot of good Christian answers so far. D. Your dog. Something to be thankful for, a dog. E. My daughter, Elizabeth. Okay, you guys can be thankful for my daughter, Elizabeth. This is where everybody gets uncomfortable. Come on, E, F. Rick, you've answered too many. Family. Family, something to be thankful for. G. Grace, that's a good one. H. Heaven. This is where it gets hard for me to count the alphabet. I got I. I didn't hear what that was. Yeah, shout it out. Isaac, okay. What's the next one? J. Jesus, James. Do you guys get the point? Already you guys are already you guys are lightening up. But as we start doing things that, that change our attitude, we start saying, Well, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for this. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things. And if you just start your prayers with gratitude, it sure adjusts your complaints. It sure adjusts the things that you're praying for. And if we force ourselves, if we train ourselves to be thankful, I believe that we become thankful people. We have so much to be thankful for. And as Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. He says, well, will you pray for me? I found this interesting. This is Paul the Apostle. The reason that this whole letter is, is kind of brought about is that there's a problem in Colossians that needs straightening out. Paul is under arrest for living for Christ. And yet, as he sends this letter to these people who he's kind of correcting, he says, hey, would you pray for me? Like, this is humility. Like, sometimes it's hard for people to say, like, hey, how can I pray for you? Oh, I'm good. Come on, you got to have something that, like, how can we be praying for you? And Paul says, hey, pray at the same time for us as well. And I love his prayer. We know that he's under arrest. And I'm thinking, if I'm in Paul's shoes, I mean, pray that Caesar would hear my case so I can get out of this house. I've been here for two years. I just want to get out and go on vacation. But what he says, he says, that God would open a door for us, open to us a door for the word. Pray that God would open a door so that the word, that the gospel would be able to, to go through this so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Paul doesn't seem to care that he's under arrest. He's just in this current situation that I'm in. Would you pray that God would open a door so that the gospel could get out? I think it's, it's in one of the books of Timothy when he says, hey, the whole praetorian guard, they've all heard the gospel now because they've got to keep watch on me. And these are the most elite guys that have access and, and the gospel's going forth through them. Like his perspective seems to be that of eternal of eternity. He says, for which I have been in prison. He says, I am under arrest because I've been proclaiming Christ. And now that I'm under arrest, pray that God would continue to open the door, that the word of Christ could continue to go out, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. I love this. I read Paul's letters. And I think this is the guy who's afraid of how he speaks. He speaks so clearly that, that he wrote so much of the New Testament. And as it relates to the church, we have most of our information about the Christian church because of his writings. And yet he's concerned about speaking clearly. And maybe because of this concern is why he spoke so clearly. He goes on to say, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. I love this verse because it's so similar to Ephesians 5.15, which is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He says, as you live your life, as you're, out there amongst the world, those who don't know Christ, use wisdom in how you engage with the world. If you're a believer in Christ and you're around non-believers, the things you complain about or the things that you say it has an impact on those that are hearing. Are we that different from the world and the church at large? I don't know how different that the church in our culture is from the world around it. But he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Wisdom is the, the application of knowledge. So conduct yourselves 
Live your lives with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. This word opportunity is time, kairos. It's not chronos time, but, but, but key opportunities in our life. Making the most is literally to buy those opportunities, redeem them when they come up. And so from this verse, I see that as we live our life in situations, opportunities that come up, not all opportunities are created equal. There are situations that we face that are, that are certain opportunities that, that have the opportunity for us to take advantage of for God's glory. There are moments in life that we can let pass by, that we will never be able to get back. There are opportunities I've missed. There are situations in like crises, like praying the whole way, oh, Lord, Lord, help me to, to do the right thing. Situation comes up, given an opportunity to speak. I blow the opportunity and I kick myself the whole way home. Oh, I should have done this. Recently, there was, there was, there was one. The, the whole SWAT team situation when the wife was killed. And they recalled the whole SWAT team. I was invited to come down there to be a part of it. And then a partway through the brief, they said, okay, if you're not on the team, everybody's going to be escorted out. Everybody has to leave. We're going to have our own thing, and this is for only team members. And so when they kicked everybody out, I kind of sat there going, oh, should I stay or should I go? I don't know where I fit. And so I stayed. And so then when the sergeant starts speaking, I'm going, okay, I'm going to just brace my pride for him to say, hey, Gunner, you're, you're going to have to excuse yourself. And so that's what I was ready to hear. And so when the sergeant started speaking, he said, hey, Gunner. And I, I like started packing my bags mentally. I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. He said, hey, do you have any words for us just to the team? And I was so blindsided. Like I wasn't ready to like, to share, I said something. I don't know what I said. But the whole drive home, I had about a half a dozen other things that would have been so much better to say. Opportunities to pray. And I remember I text Dave Bishop on the way home. So oh, I should have done this. And he's like, how funny. I had that same thought. I should have done that. But there's, but I, I don't know that I'll have that opportunity. But if it comes up, I've already mentally thought through it. So I know what I'm going to say next time. But there are opportunities that come up and we, we can buy them, we can seize them, or we can let them pass. In verse 6, he, from this, as these opportunities pass, there's ways to make these opportunities surface, I believe. Let your speech always be with grace. Literally graciousness. That how you speak would be filled with graciousness. That your life has been so touched by God's grace that you're just pouring out this graciousness. As though seasoned with salt, which is, in some ways, is kind of, I'm not sure exactly what it means. My best stab is I love salt. I mean, I really like salty foods. As I'm getting older, sweet things are kind of, it's in a tug of war. But I think most times if I had the option between something sweet or something salty, I'll take salty. Give me pizza, give me spicy, give me chips. People that taste my food say all they can taste is the salt or the spice. But one thing that I, as I'm thinking about this, the, the one aspect of salt that it does, when I was in seventh grade, I got sent away to a bad kid's camp. Bad, it was yeah, Aspen Achievement Academy in, in Utah. I spent eight weeks surviving in the wild with, with like four other kids. And... Uh, it was really a little overshot for me. Like even my dad apologized to me for sending me there, but he made a rash decision on the spot. And, and I had a blast. It was like camping all summer. They offered me a job when I was done. So I kind of passed. But in the phases, what you had to do is, is there was three phases. In the first phase, they isolated you at the end for, for a 24-hour window. So you're out in the middle of the woods all by yourself, and it was just time for you to reflect. Then the second phase, it was two days. Then the third phase, it was three days alone. And on, on that three-day venture, they kind of, when they broke us out, they said, okay, you're going to be alone for three days. Here's the pool of food. Grab whatever you can grab. And so the thing I grabbed, I never heard of it before, but it's a stuff called salt pork. It was like this block of like meat. I researched it on bacon to figure out what it was. It's literally, it's like bacon and it's in a block. 
and it doesn't really go bad. Like they, I guess on ships, they would used to take it on journeys on ships because they could keep the meat around for a while. And so that was my main item, that and a bunch of carrots. And my goal was to like barbecue this stuff up, but it rained on me the whole time. I couldn't like get any fire started until the, the last day. I'd already run out of water at this point, and I finally got this fire going, and I barbecued up this salt pork. I fried it up in a coffee can, and it was so awesome. I ate the whole big old cube of salt pork within an hour. Well, then after an hour, I'd never been so thirsty before in my life. I had no, I, it was horrible thirst. I'd never experienced this kind of thirst before. I knew I had 12 more hours before they were going to come, like, release me from isolation. But I thought it was like, it came to like an emergency situation where I was just climbing up the tallest tree screaming, water, I need water. Because they threatened us that if you broke it, then you'd have to start the whole program over. So I wasn't going to start over, but I was so thirsty. They finally brought me water. And so one thing about salt is it, it brings out this thirst. If you eat pizza, when we eat pizza, especially with the kids, almost without fail, about two in the morning, Ellie and Grace will be like stumbling into our room. I'm so thirsty. I'm so, I need some water. Okay, we'll get you some water. And so when I read, let your speech always be with grace or always be gracious as though seasoned with salt. So as our words are filled with God's grace and graciousness, what it does is it makes the outsiders thirsty. What is it about you? How come your language is different? How do you live differently? What is it about you? See, he goes on, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, this, how you should respond means that that person has approached you. What is it about you? Oh, well, my worldview is a little bit different because... You know, I believe that God created everything. That I was separated because of my sin. That God became man and lived the perfect life. And that he went to the cross and died for my sins. And believing in him, I have salvation. I have relationship with him. It's changed the, everything. It's changed how I, how I treat my wife. It's changed how I treat my husband. It's changed how I've treated my kids. It changes how I work. And so that we would have wisdom as we address them. And then going on to verse 7. This whole verses 7 through 17, he lists all of these people. And I'm like, how in the world am I... Like each one of these guys, if you can find information, it's an interesting case study. But in this, what I see is Paul starts this section with prayer, this relationship with God. Then from prayer, it's conduct yourselves with outsiders that our relationship with those that are apart from Christ. And then he mentions all of these people who are part of the household of God. And he's not speaking directly about relationships, but, but all we, I can see in this is the relationships amongst those who are in Christ and the beauty of the fellowship of being a part of the family of God. I mean, seriously, the people at this church, I'm closer with so many people from our church than I am with a lot of people in my family who don't know Christ. Like, I'm just closer. I love you guys. We have relationship. We're united through Christ. And so the first few verses here, verses 7 through 9, Paul's talking about the messengers. The letter he wrote was to be delivered by two people. The first one is Tychicus. Tychicus is mentioned in Paul's writings probably about five times. He's clearly a faithful servant of Paul, would serve and, and journey and make these deliveries for Paul. He was sort of Paul's like email host. He, Paul needed something to be delivered. Tychicus would take care of it. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord. So right there, we learn so much about Tychicus. Our beloved brother that Paul was intimately close with this person. He loved him as a, a, you would love a brother. He's a faithful servant. He was steady in his service to the Lord. A fellow bond servant in the Lord that he chose to surrender his life to Christ and to live fully sold out for him. 
He will bring you information. So when he comes to you, he has information outside of this letter for you. For I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. They all know that Paul's under arrest, that he'd appealed to Caesar and he was sat, sat in prison. And so Tychicus was going to come, deliver them more news, explain the situation with Paul. The most people, I'm in one of them, this, this first arrest under Rome, Paul eventually saw Caesar, he was released. And then later he was rearrested and executed. But maybe he was getting close to his release or he, there was news and Tychicus was going to come deliver the news about the situation that would encourage them. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your numbers. So we learned about Onesimus. Onesimus is from Colossae. The letter that Paul, one of the letters that Paul sent was Philemon, a short letter. There's only one chapter of this letter. It's just Philemon. 20-something verses, I, 25 verses. I couldn't read lips, Rick's lips that fast. And in that letter, we see that Onesimus was a slave that had, that had run, had stolen from his master, took off to Rome. Paul finds him. He becomes a Christian. And Paul says, listen, in Christ, you've got to face your past. If you are a slave and you ran from your master, you've got to go back and make amends. In fact, your master is a believer. I know him. Anything that you owe him, I'll pay for but you've got to go back. And I, that whole letter, we know about Philemon. We can read Philemon to get more information. But as far as the church in Colossae, Paul doesn't air out all his dirty laundry for them to read. Like we all have his dirty laundry now, but that's because it's a God's inspired word. And there's lessons for us. But as Paul writes, he refers to them. He doesn't say Onesimus, you know, the one that was Philemon, you know, the guy who has a church in your area, his slave that stole a bunch of money and ran off, I got him. And he's coming back to you to make men's. That's not what he says. He refers to him as Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, one of your own number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. And I love Paul's graciousness towards Onesimus as he deals with the church. Verses 10 through 11, we're going to discover that Paul and his traveling companions, he has three Jewish brothers that continued to minister with them. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. So there's another Jewish guy that's under arrest with Paul. He says, hey, will you tell them I said hello? So Paul says hello for him. And also Barnabas's cousin, Mark about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So we all should know about Barnabas. When Paul became a Christian, the whole church was terrified of him. They believed it was a ploy on Paul's part that he would convert to Christianity so that he could infiltrate and then he could have them all arrested. And then Barnabas, his name literally means son of encouragement, comes alongside, comes alongside Paul, says, I vouch for him. He's a believer. Barnabas takes Paul under his wing and they, they do a missionary journey together. Now, on the second missionary journey, there's a little point of contention. Even in my marriage about how we understand what happened. But Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, Mark, on the second journey. And Paul says, no way. He deserted us on the first time. And they, they so argued and contended over what was right that they just parted ways. And Paul and Barnabas, they go separate directions. And Paul was upset at Mark. But here we see some reconciliation on Paul's part. And later in Timothy, Paul would say that, Bar that Mark is of value for ministry. Use him. And what I love about this going down to verse 11, it says they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Hmm. Barnabas, an encourager, his cousin, Mark, an encourager. It's possible that on this first missionary journey, this is a total leap of faith on, you know, speculation, not leap of faith. Maybe Mark was just serving in a capacity that he wasn't called to. 
But here, as an encourager, that if he had this gift of encouragement and he's now functioning within his, his gifts, things were going better. Like, I don't know. But here's Paul, who obviously there was tension. They parted ways over Mark. Now Paul is in prison or under house arrest. Mark goes to him to encourage him. If I was, if I was about to go on a missions trip, or I wanted really bad to go on like a year mission trip to somewhere. And then the leader of the trip said, sorry, man, you, you made some mistakes early on. And I don't think that you're up to this, this thing. Why don't you stay back and uh, do other things? I would be a little upset. But then if that person later found himself in a situation, would I be graciousness enough to go encourage them? Obviously, Mark was. I don't know. Those are just random tangent thoughts. Moving on, there's also Jesus, which was a very common name in Judaism at that time. But after the whole, you know, Jesus of Nazareth thing, it became less popular amongst uh, Jewish people because of the controversy surrounded the name. And, and so this guy, he's Jesus, but he goes by justice. These are the only workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So here are the three guys. They're Jewish. They're serving alongside Paul. They're encouraging him. Now on to three Greek people who are encouraging Paul. There's Epaphras, who we've already mentioned. Epaphras is the pastor of these, these, these churches located in this triangle region between uh, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hyperlis. Um, Epaphras, who is one of your number a bond slave of Jesus Christ, he sends you, sends you his greetings. So he's not coming back on this journey with Tychicus and Onesimus. He's one of their number. Paul says he's a bond slave of Christ. He's chosen just to give his life to Jesus. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. So Paul says, as this guy's been with me, telling me about the struggles going on there, He's laboring. Maybe I have labor on my brain, but labor is not a, a, is it whether it's work related, like weed whacking or a woman giving birth. This is like to devote yourself to prayer. And when he sees Epaphras praying for the church back there, he says, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. This guy loves his people. And what he prays that you may stand perfect or complete, fully assured in the will of God. Because these Gnostics, they were steering them astray. And he wanted them to understand the true gospel. He says, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you. And for those who are in Laodicea and hyper, I just, I was not meant to be a Greek speaker. Hierapolis. The problem is if I read it, I can see it. But if I'm just trying to say it, I can't. That's my excuse. So he goes on Luke, the beloved physician, the one who wrote the gospel of Luke, who, who many believe that Paul led him to the Lord. He traveled with Paul, was Paul's sort of personal doctor. He sends you his greetings. And also Demas. Nothing's mentioned of Demas other than he's traveling with Paul at this point. But if you'll turn with me over, keep your place here, over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we learn a little something about this guy. Paul's under arrest in 2 Timothy. The situation's totally different. This, in many ways, I see 2 Timothy as Paul's last will and testament. He's under arrest, but it's not house arrest. He's in a pit. He's cold. He's begging for Timothy to get his jacket to him because he's freezing at night. And in chapter 4, verse 10, well, we'll start in verse 9. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so it's not really much there. But so here's this guy, Demas, who was alongside Paul. Under this arrest, he abandons Paul. And we're told having loved this present world. Demas no longer wanted to be a part of the ministry. 
And so as we're back in Colossians, and he just says that Demas sends his greetings in these relationships. On one end, we have Mark, who there was tension, that there were problems that, that Paul had with him. We see that those relationships were mended. Then we see this guy, Demas, who was at some level on fire for the Lord at this point because he's mentioned by Paul and he's with Paul. He sends him his greetings. Then two or three years later, when Paul's under arrest again, his name comes up and he's abandoned him. And there are people that are walking with the Lord that go astray, that walk away from the faith. And it's heart-wrenching. And I think that there's a warning for us who call ourselves followers of Christ to realize that our hearts are terribly wicked and it's so easy for us to get off track. And it, it may be that we get off track in, in very worldly ways or the sinful ways like drugs, alcohol, that some people struggle in those areas. But I would say that most of us probably get off track with materialism and things of the world, things that are approved of by the world, that greed and envy and chasing after material wealth. And so there's, there's a warning here to keep our eyes on the steering wheel. Or I don't know if that's a bad one, but I, gotta keep, I always think steering wheel because of that Volkswagen bug of mine. Like I've got I've to keep on the line because I know what my heart is. And I don't want to be like Demas. I want to go the distance. And I'll never forget my Dr. Chuck Emeritt, one of my seminary professors during a break. It was kind of a break, but I think he was told us we were on break, but then kept talking. So we were still in class, but on break and not on subject. And he said he often, for, for encouragement, what he does is he stares at his bookshelf in his library. Like, you stare at your bookshelf at your library? And he's like, yeah, I just look through my books. And I realized that that commentary series came from a pastor friend of mine that had a moral failing and this one who walked away from the ministry because of this and all of his books were given to him or a large part of them were given to him by his his peers when he was a young man that that they walked away from the ministry they walked away from the lord for one reason or another and i was like oh wow so now when i sit at home and i look at my books not that any of them came from a situation like that I can't help but to think of that situation. And this professor who is in his 80s or so saying that he wants to finish strong, that he wants to go the distance. Okay, back back to the subject, verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nipha. This is a girl or a person. It's a girl, I was right. My, and the church that is in her house. So he says, hey, all of, all of the believers there that are in your region, say hello to all of them. And this lady who hosts the church in her home sent her greetings. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So he says, when you get this, read this. Share it with all of the people who are believers in your region. Then trade it off and get that other letter and start reading that letter. I believe that other letter was Ephesians. And so Paul wants to encourage him. We know that this is an epistle that was meant to be read by churches. It applies to us today. It's God's word that, that if we're believers, this is important and Paul wanted it read. Now Philemon, that was a letter that Paul wrote to a specific person. It might not be to us, but, but it's for us and there's principles out of it. I, I hope that distinction makes sense. How the context of how these letters are written. But this is a circular letter that he wants it to be disseminated and to go forth and for all of the believers to read it, to pass it on, to get that other letter so that they could grow in their faith. Say to Archippus, it's believed that this is the son of Philemon, the one who owned Onesimus. It's believed from Philemon verse 2. It's a stretch, but most commentators seem to believe that this is likely his son. And this is just a an encouragement to him it says say to archippus so here's paul writing this letter to everybody say you tell this guy this young man take heed to the ministry which you have received in the lord that you may fulfill it it's this admonition live out what god's called you to do 
And then he ends, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. And so as we kind of end this letter, there's so much here. And in many ways, I feel like I've short-stroked it for the depth that's there for flying through stuff. I believe that Colossians 2, 6, and 7, I want to end there. I believe that this is the key verse of Colossians. That and $1.90 might get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I'm not sure what the actual prices are right now. But there's no right or wrong. This is just when I look at Colossians, I believe that this verse is the key. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The key is, who is God? Paul makes it clear in this that Jesus is Lord, that he's creator over all. That through his life, through his ministry, we have a relationship with God. That this relationship with God changes everything that we do. It affects our day-to-day life. I love what Charles Swindoll says. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross so that you would have something to do for an hour on Sunday. That that Christianity, when we believe that Christ and we receive Christ as Savior, it transcends our whole life. That everything that we do is different. And Father, we come before you. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to come to understand who Christ is in his fullness. I don't know that our brains can fully comprehend this dual nature of Christ being 100% man and fully God simultaneously. But Father, we pray that you would help us to understand who Christ is in his deity. And Father, as we come to understand this rightly, Lord, that our theology wouldn't just be in our minds, that our understanding would actually lead to our actions and how we live our life. And Father, we pray that you would give us your eyes. Lord, help us to take advantage of prayer. That we would seek you, that we would communicate with you, that we would nurture our relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that as we spend time in the word, Father, that we would spend time in the word. That as we spend time in the word, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts to hear your voice. That your word would take root in our heart. Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we navigate this life with outsiders, with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our employers, with our friends. Lord, we desire, Lord, to embody grace. Father, help us to control our flesh, which is so wicked and so leads us astray. We come to you, Lord, with open hearts. We love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.